Welcome back to another podcast here in the Rams Den. And today my special guest is Alex Hershaft. Welcome to the uh, to the podcast, Alex. It's great to have you here. Thank you, David. I've been looking forward to this. Um, Alex, I'll give you a quick introduction and then obviously you're going to give us a lot more in-depth introduction. So um, you're an animal rights activist. Alex is an animal rights activist and founder of FARM, which stands for Farmed Animal Rights Movement. And uh, been doing that since uh, I believe 1976. I believe you founded it, so it's you know you've you've been around in the movement and doing this for animals yes, for a very I long have. time. And um, also um, notably, and you know, an incredible story you have because you are also a survivor of the Jewish Holocaust, which is just you know a phenomenal um and not, not something you hear every day so we're, we're absolutely going to get into that as well what are you up to at the moment actually what what's what's how's life for you are you still involved with farm is this still something your day-to-day or like tell us a bit about that sure so i started my retirement process in uh, uh 2018 actually beginning of 2018 by shifting okay. over a number of our programs to another organization. And then for mm-hmm. a couple of years, I was leading the life of semi-retirement until uh, two years ago when uh, we hired a new executive director and he's currently running okay. farm. His name is Eric Lindstrom. And uh, I am still the president, which means basically that I raise the money and uh, once a week uh, we have a chat with Eric, go over any questions he may have and I give him any advice that he may Mm -hmm. wish to take or not. And uh, uh, mostly (laughs) I'm trying to work on my book, which is about well, actually, two books. Okay. One is about my journey from the Holocaust to animal rights. And the other is uh, mm-hmm. I have some pretty strong views about the animal rights movement and the history of it, the, the accomplishments, the successes, failures, mm-hmm. and uh, and where we are okay. today and where what the future portends that's great because you know we're going to talk about all of that today and i and i and i know you've got some strong views because i've i've read some of your blogs and i've i've seen some of the things you've been talking about and obviously i know you know you reached out to me um a couple of years ago when you saw you know you saw what was happening with me and the the whole drama with the save movements and you know you reached out and 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 again you gave me some some of your thoughts there as well so it's great to I really appreciate that you're not afraid to speak your mind on topics like that. And and it's great, Dan, that you're putting a book together where I guess you're going to deal with a lot of these, uh, you know, things that are going well and obviously things that aren't going well. And we are going to talk about that today. And I guess a great place to start, you know, to give people a real understanding of who you are and where you came from would be, you know, you, you survived the Holocaust. I mean, as I said at the beginning, it's it's not something I you ever imagine you know, it's not something you say every day, like, oh, here we have somebody who survived this, you know, the worst thing to, to happen in modern history, literally, you know, the worst, the worst of humanity in modern history. So let's go back to that. Then you were five years old. We're going back pr- quite a significant way here. But, uh, you know, tell us about it. Like sure. what, 
what happened? I mean, like, like I don't know where to begin, to be honest with you, but I guess well, you do. So, you know, talk yeah, us through for, this. For, yeah, for a child, uh, you know, there is a certain age when we start remembering things. And uh, I don't remember very mm. much before the age of five. Uh, but of course, when I was five years old in 1939 is uh, when the Nazi armies mm. invaded Poland and declared martial law. Uh, <clears throat> there was, uh, I remember there was a lot of bombing, a lot of shooting, a uh, lot of people getting killed. Uh, those are some of my earliest memories. Several months after the invasion, uh, the Nazis required all Jews from around the Warsaw, the greater Warsaw area, to move into the Jewish quarter of Warsaw. Uh, so there, the numbers roughly were 450,000. Uh, it was the largest uh, Jewish population outside of, except for New York and the United States. And uh, we were all squeezed into this small section of a few blocks. Uh, so the population density was was atrocious, unbearable. Uh, we were very fortunate in that uh, my grandfather uh, was manager of an apartment building in the ghetto. And uh, we were able to move in with him. He had a very nice apartment. And... Uh, and so, so we actually ended up having two rooms, which we needed because my father was a book collector mm -hmm. and uh, he had one room just filled with books. And uh, my parents and I were living in the other room. So uh, this, uh, this went on for a couple of years. Uh, there was terrible hunger and disease uh, there was a typhus epidemic, mm. and it is estimated that about 800,000 people died of hunger and disease during those uh, two years before the summer of 1942. Uh, we were fortunate in that we had a, a Russian maid, or my grandparents had a Russian maid, who, because of her connections, was able to get a permit not only to live with us because Gentiles were not allowed to stay in the ghetto, but also to go in and out, which meant that she was able to take valuables out of the ghetto, trade them for food and bring food back. So we actually had food unlike some other people. So. I would say, uh, as as far as the ghetto experience goes, uh, I led kind of a privileged life. Uh, I, I was also the only child in the extended family, so I was uh, pretty well taken care of by the adults in our apartment. Uh, eventually, in the summer of uh, 1942, was uh, when the second phase 
of the so-called final solution was implemented, which meant that people were rounded up, packed into cattle cars, and shipped off to the gas chambers of Treblinka, which had just been completed in July of 1942. <clears throat> Treblinka was basically a camp about 60 miles northeast of Warsaw and that uh, contained uh, basically gas chambers and uh, an unloading platform and large pits where bodies were originally buried and eventually uh, burned. And uh, we were able to survive that first roundup because my dad was working for the Jewish council and uh, and the, the Germans spared people like my dad because they needed the Jewish council to kind of run, run things in the ghetto. So we were able mm -hmm. to hide in the same building where my dad was moved. And that's how we were spared. But it became obvious that, that roundup lasted about two months between uh, early July and, mm -hmm. and late August. Uh, once that was over, uh, those of us who survived, I, I would say, so just to work some numbers, so we started with 450,000, mm -hmm. uh, close to 100,000 died of hunger and disease, leaving around 350,000. Uh, roughly 300,000 were shipped out to the guest chambers of Treblinka between July and August. So there were about 50,000 of us left. At that point, it became pretty obvious that uh, staying in, uh, in the ghetto was certain death. So we decided to yeah. leave. Leaving the ghetto uh, had two problems. One was the physical act of leaving. Uh, the other is once you left, you basically became a, a, a criminal, a, a fugitive, because uh, because you were a Jew. <laughs> um, so we were we were yeah. pretty fortunate in that uh, uh, one of my dad's sisters, who was a famous actress in Poland did not move, move into the ghetto. She passed as Christian and she was mm -hmm. living outside. So when we escaped the ghetto by bribing the guards, basically, we were able to go to her apartment and then immediately moved out into the country. And the reason for moving to the country was because we could pretend to be on vacation and we didn't have to register. If mm -hmm. you were living in a city, you had to register and in order to register, you needed false papers. So basically we spent the next two years in hiding. And that's kind of a long story that will be in my book. But uh, eventually mm -hmm. I was separated from my parents my mother was shipped off to a German labor camp as a Christian. And uh, after the war, she was able to come back and find me 
and uh, we left Poland after the war. My father was never heard from again, and we presume that he was killed in one of the camps, perhaps Dachau. It's 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 an insane um, story. I mean, I've just myself was just visited the um, Auschwitz camps um, just recently, and um, you know I heard the stories there and then. But now you know it, it's one thing to see the things on you know to see the pictures and to see the places. It's another thing to speak with somebody who uh, you know lived through you know being in one of these ghettos and surviving one of these ghettos it's it's uh i i try it, it it's disbelief like I, I i just can't for me personally i i can't believe this you know it's like it's it, it's almost easier to try and trick yourself that none of this happened because you can't if you believe it happened and yeah factually it happened it's just too much to to handle really you know it, it really is just so to think that anyone is capable of something like this, that any you know group of people are capable of what they did, and it's and it's something that you've spoken about before. It's something you think about a lot, isn't it? Like how how did supposedly civilized people, right, modern enlightened individuals, how did they become or supposedly modern enlightened? How did they get to a point where they were capable of this? And this is, I know this is something you think about a lot and something you've been looking into over the last 70 years, right? Um, like, what is the lesson here? What is to be learned from this? Um, so could you talk us through that a little bit of, you know, your journey of surviving this and, you know, what you, yeah, like you've been trying to figure out, like, you know, how the hell did this happen? And, and, and you know, trying to learn a lesson from it. Sure. Right? Well, let's see, you're kind of, Cutting to the chase here, okay. So, right. So I'll. We can step back as well. I'm happy to go back as well a little bit. Well, well, obviously. So, so this uh, the war ended in 1945. Uh, We spent uh, five years in an Italian refugee camp, and eventually I emigrated to the United States in 19. 51 at age 16. Uh, My mother was not allowed to come here because she was suspected of being a communist sympathizer. So she ended up uh, spending the rest of her life in Israel. Uh, uh, My main preoccupation after arriving here was financial survival, you know, nobody was trying to kill me anymore, which was refreshing, but it was was still a matter of of surviving, uh, of, uh, you know, financial survival. So I started out actually bizarrely uh, working on the chicken farm in Connecticut. Uh, This was at the very beginning of factory farming. We 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 heard that mm. some people were producing eggs by keeping chickens in metal cages, but we hadn't seen that. 1950 was basically mm. when factory farming got its start. Anyway, and then I went to the mm. University of Connecticut, then I got my PhD at Iowa State, uh, got to the point where you know, I was able to achieve financial security. And uh, one of the 
uh, one of the uh, things that happens when you don't have to worry about where your next meal comes from is you have time to think. So um, mm -hmm. in 1961, uh, after getting my PhD, I uh, moved mm. to Israel to spend some time with my mother. And uh, I almost immediately uh, came across a ceremony where a, a tribe was celebrating the birth of a child. And uh, I saw a baby goat tied up and I said, well, what's, what, why this baby goats here? And they said, well, we're going to sacrifice the baby goat to. And I said, you mean you're celebrating the birth of a child by killing another child? And, and, yeah. and the absurdity of it, it's just a very logical person. Uh, and it just struck me. And I swore to myself, I made a personal pledge that I will never eat animal flesh again. It was just a very personal mm -hmm. decision that not, I didn't mm -hmm. know, didn't call it vegetarian because I didn't know the meaning of the term. I didn't know any other vegetarians. Mm -hmm. It was just a very personal decision that I didn't discuss with anybody. It was just like right. uh, liking ice cream or not liking coffee or it was just a personal dietary decision and uh, i started mm. reflecting uh, and uh, i was asking i was asking myself three basic questions one was kind of spiritual which is why was i allowed to live when so many fine people did not and then the second one was mm. a little more practical which is what could I do to repay the debt of my life, basically? What could I do to, mm. to repay this to society, the fact that I was allowed to live? And the third one was, you know, we're talking about the tragedy of the Holocaust, and of course it was a horrible tragedy. Uh, can we learn something from it? You know, usually, if you look at some of the other major tragedies of humankind, the uh, like uh, major religious exterminations or uh, the plagues, uh, we usually found a solution and learned something from it that allowed us to avoid such disasters in the future. And so my question was, what can we learn from from the Holocaust, and uh, and and those questions were bothering me a lot. I mean, there were I didn't have answers. I I just had questions. So uh, yeah. So in 1972, I ended up in Washington, and uh, I already had my PhD at that point in chemistry, and I became very interested in uh, environmental issues. Remember 1970 was the first Earth Day, and I just uh, started looking into... Okay. Uh, 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 the beginnings of the environmental movement was about reducing waste production. It was 
was long before global warming or any of the other finer issues that we're concerned with today. It was mostly about how to deal with wastewater and solid waste and that sort of thing. And uh, so I became kind of, because of my chemistry background, I became kind of a <clears throat> instant in, uh, expert on that. So I ended up working for a major consulting firm in Washington. They sent me to a Midwestern slaughterhouse to take a look at their wastewater disposal problems. So I arrived there in the you know, stay, checked into the local hotel in the morning. I checked in with the slaughterhouse manager. He showed me where the waste areas were, where they were keeping all their waste. And I started making my tour, take, keeping notes. Now, keep in mind that, uh, that I, I <laughs> Yes, I was in a slaughterhouse, but I wasn't thinking of it in those terms. If you ask me, yes, I know what a slaughterhouse is, but I just didn't make the connection. To mm. me, I was in the mind frame of a scientist going to an industrial facility and trying to solve their waste problem, the waste disposal problem. <laughs> so I'm walking around with my uh, with my clipboard and I turn a corner and I come across these piles of body parts. You know, there were heads and lungs and hearts and bones and, and, and you know, it's one thing to, to, I mean, the visual impact immediately immediately brought flashbacks of the scenes of piles of shoes and glasses and suitcases and hair of human beings that you see when you visit Auschwitz. And, and, and I thought to myself, what's going on here? Uh, how can it be? And I just didn't know how to deal with this. And I, I said to myself, well, they're only animals. And it didn't work hmm. because I was seeing it. You know, it's one thing to say it in the abstract, but when you look at this, I mean, they don't, bones don't look all that different, you know, hearts don't look the difference yeah. you know body parts are still body parts you know you're not talking about this mm -hmm. stems of wheat or flowers or, you know they're body parts so I, I said to myself well after all i mean there must be some explanation you know why it's okay to kill animals and it was not okay to kill jews uh, and as a scientist, you know, I'll just do some research and I'll figure it out. And I did. <laughs> the only trouble was the more I researched, the more I saw the similarities, uh, starting with the roundups, the rounding up of the victims. 
they're storing the victims in, in wood crates. Uh, the, the deception to, to prevent the victims from revolting and panicking, uh, the, the gassing of the victims, uh, the, it just, I mean, it just went on and on. The, the more I looked into the details, the more I saw the similarities, the use of cattle cars to transport victims to their death. Uh, it was just uncanny, and uh, and I just did not have a, an explanation. And on top of it, I was very lonely because I didn't know anyone else who felt that way. I couldn't share my feelings with anyone because mm. you know they they would think I'm crazy. I need to be committed. So it was it was a terrible few months, and what really restored my sanity was coming across the writings of Isaac Bashevis Singer, who famously said that <clears throat> through the animals all people are Nazis, and for the animals life is mm -hmm. an eternal treblinka. And then I realized that somebody, no less than a writer, this was before he got his Nobel Prize for Literature, which came in 1978, about six years later. But still, he was a pretty well-known writer at that point. And he was from Warsaw, from, from my home. Right. <laughs> a, a Jew from Warsaw, I, I felt that. Uh, a lot of kinship towards Isaac Bolshevist Singer. I later learned, in many years later, I learned that at the same time, in 1972, he was having his own mental issues, but not connected with animal slaughter, but more connected with uh, the life of Jews, of, of new Jewish immigrants to the United States. But anyway, so that gave me a little bit of calm. And uh, and I said, well, what do I do now that I know that there is somebody else who who shares my view? So so at least, so so it gave legitimacy to my view. And, uh, and I said, okay, yeah. so at least there are two of us who feel that way. And uh, so so <laughs> let me let me do something positive and the only positive thing i could think of is to basically answer those questions that were plugging plaguing me uh, that i mentioned earlier which is what can i do to mm -hmm. repay the debt and what lessons can we learn from the terrible tragedy of the holocaust and so i then resolved that I would spend the rest of my life in uh, attempting to end the use of animals for food. But I didn't know how to do it. It was just a personal pledge that I made to myself. Mm -hmm. right. And uh, still, still I didn't know any vegetarians at that point. It's such an inspirational story. It's it's a, it's a a story that not many people 
have you know how they became vegan this is this is very unique and and um, an incredible story that i hope i hope inspires a few people watching to consider you know to go vegan because geez you know if you alex hershaft you know a man who survived the holocaust is saying that the animal agriculture industry reminds you of the holocaust i mean that's a pretty simple and clear message that that's not something that good people should be partaking in right i mean geez if if that doesn't convince you i don't know what will um a few other things i've seen you talk about as well like something that i found to be very powerful something that you said was um another similarity you saw was the, the decision making on who lives who dies the arbitrary decision making that decides on life or death like the christian lives the jew dies the dog lives the pig dies that was a very powerful statement i've i've heard you make and it really it's it, it really is that arbitrary isn't it you know it's it's it really is that there's nothing to it there's you know there's no difference between those people and there's no difference between those animals but yet someone makes a decision someone clicks their fingers and you know someone has to die and uh, it is um it is a, is a horrible horrible similarity I, I i agree um and another thing you mentioned i wanted to also that i thought was equally as powerful was the deception i'd like to talk about that for for a moment actually you mentioned earlier that they deceived you in the um the ghettos they wanted to make you think that this was just some kind of you know relocation or something right and and also they even put a star of david on the on treblinka right to 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 trick people to you know think this is everything's fine we can go in here it's got the star of david you know so the, they, they worked quite hard to deceive and, and they also do that to animals in slaughterhouses. They deceive them with, with um, you know, you've seen the goats, the, the, they use goats to deceive other goats to come in. They've, what do they call the Judas goat? And, and also they deceive us as well, right? About what happens in there. Um, so um, yeah, tell me a bit about, about that actually, you know, expand on that a little bit. Like, you know, what, what, we're going back again now, but we'll come back to present day in a moment. But like, how how did the Nazis try to deceive you exactly? Like, what what were they doing to to try and trick you and your family? And how did you? And and second question: Did did your family see straight through it, or or were they actually? Was anybody, you know, was did anybody believe them at any point? Was it was it you know? Just talk to me about about that a bit, and then we can come back to the um, present day and and you know how the slaughterhouses are doing the deception uh, sure so uh, so when the roundups begin when uh, when the nazis uh, moved the jewish population into the jewish section of warsaw and then built mm. walls around it basically turning it into a concentration camp uh, we didn't know why I mean, we, we sort of knew that the Nazis didn't like the Jews, but uh, we, we didn't. And, and so the pretext was that Jews, because we were so unpopular and so undesirable, that we had to be separated from the Christian population. That was sort of the general notion. Right. But we didn't know why we needed okay. walls and why why we were virtually in a prison in a camp. Uh, so, mm. so then when they uh, and this this basically went on for for two years. Then in nineteen in the summer of nineteen forty two right. when they started the roundups, 
the idea was, okay, you guys have suffered for two years, the <clears throat> disease and hunger, you know, we now have a we now have conquered uh, the Russia because this was before the the Battle of Stalingrad when the Germans finally yeah the, okay. when when the tide of war turned against the Germans so the idea was to to expand into Russia and so so the the excuse was we needed labor to build facilities in Russia for the German people. So, so we were resettling all the ghetto people east uh, to do construction work and, and, and to grow food and so forth and so on. We were a little puzzled at the severity of it, you know, the fact that, that people were forced into it, that they didn't have a choice. We, we saw the packing mm. of a hundred people into a single cattle car. So so there was some there was a little bit of suspicion of the severity of the transportation of the transfer. Uh, once people arrived in Treblinka, so that it depended the lucky ones were the, the early ones because they were processed, which meant that they were gassed immediately and didn't suffer. The later ones uh, right. ended up spending days in a hot sun, you know, they basically died of heat stroke and asphyxiation in those cattle cars. They never right. made it to Treblinka. <clears throat> but the, the lucky ones, okay. the early ones who were able to get unloaded in Treblinka, they basically saw what looked like a, a legitimate uh, train transfer station they 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 had fake uh, boards with fake uh, train de destinations they had whistles they right. uh, i mean the it it looked like a primitive but an actual train station so the excuse that they that we were, were the people were being transferred to another train was was there and then and then and then the next thing was that okay because you you're so filthy and diseased and so forth we need to sanitize you and uh, and and shower you so the idea was to remove all their clothing all the belongings and then uh, and go to the showers and the showers as you point out actually right. had the star of david uh, to kind of invite people in. And mm -hmm. of course the showers were where people were guests. So that was that was the deception right. in Treblinka and uh, and also some of the other camps, uh, death camps. Uh, and uh, as you point out yeah. in in, uh, in America's slaughterhouses, uh, the, uh, the animals are similarly deceived to keep them from uh, panicking uh, they, they, they're killed, for example, uh, like cows are killed one at a time. They're, they're you know, not in a group. Uh, pigs are stunned uh, yeah. by gas. 
before they are killed and so forth. You've already said that how you how you came to to care about animals and how you decided to make that your mission. So now let's talk about how that mission became a reality, right? Because you you formed a farm, um, you started doing animal rights work. You uh, and then you went, and you went fully uh, fully vegan. You eliminated all animal products from from your life. So um, let's let's talk about that the, all of that then. So first off the yeah the, the the realization of your vision of you know full time trying to trying to end what's happening to animals talk about how that came into reality it may not be possible for today's people to appreciate the depth of nutritional ignorance and ethical indifference that prevailed in our otherwise sophisticated us society 60 years ago you know, in the early 70s. The only national group that openly advocated vegetarianism was the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And uh, uh, the term vegetarian was basically, I mean, outside the church, was pretty much a dictionary entry. Uh, People just didn't uh, identify as vegetarians. I mean, it was something very personal but you have to understand back in the early 70s there was a pervasive notion that you could not survive without animal flesh i mean that it wasn't in question i mean that was solid i myself believed that right the reason i figured that i would not die instantly I figured that what would happen is I would get sick and then I would take a bite of hamburger or, or two until I got better. And and I, you know, I mean, remember, I had a PhD in chemistry at that point, 10 years earlier. This yeah. was so established. Uh, Frances Murlape published her thesis in 1971 as a book called Diet for a Small Planet, which became an instant bestseller, selling millions of copies, reducing beef consumption, and making vegetarianism respectable for the first time. Before that, you were either a Seventh-day Adventist or I don't know what. In my case, it was just a very personal thing. I didn't know any other vegetarians. Mm-hmm. So one one of the problems which she did not anticipate <laughs> is that because of her focus on beef, a lot of people switched from beef to chicken. And uh, remember, right. yeah, that when you when you do that, uh, you you end up killing about two hundred fifty chickens to get the amount of flesh that you get from one cow. So the number of animals mm-hmm. killed for food actually went up. But uh, but what's important is that, uh, is that vegetarianism became a thing. There was a man in the, in the United States named uh, Jay Dinshaw, who was uh, impressed by the fact that in 1960, there was actually a vegan society formed in England. 
he proposed that the next World Vegetarian Congress be held in the United States. And uh, the other council members kind of laughed at him. It's in the United States, you're getting, they don't even know what the word means. How, how are you going to do it? There are no vegetarian organizations. Who's going to sponsor it? So Jay insisted and said, I will take care of it. I will sponsor it. And people had so much respect for Jay they, they, even though they didn't really b believe that could happen, they they agreed. And Jace when came home and launched an organization called the North American Vegetarian Society, which became the sponsor of something called the World Vegetarian Congress. The first time it was ever held in the United States, 1975. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm getting to me. <laughs> so I, in, in the spring of 1975, I came across a leaflet promoting the World Vegetarian Congress. So now, now I was in a quandary. Okay, so there is such a thing as a vegetarian society? There are actually people who call themselves vegetarians. Should I go? And what what if I don't like them? Will I still be a vegetarian on my own? What if they don't like me? But then the thing that really that really trumped all of these concerns was here I was with my 1972 resolution to devote the rest of my life to ending the use of animals for food. Maybe this is, maybe this is the, the, the option. Maybe this is the opportunity. And so that prevailed and I went and that's, that changed my life. I still tear up when I remember that. <clears throat> I was, uh, this was in Orono, Maine at the University of Maine campus. And, uh, and I arrived and, and there were 1,500 people from all stations of life and countries, different countries, different languages, mm. different dress, different genders, different ages. And the only thing they all had in common is they did not eat animals. And uh, <laughs> again, I can't... I can't can't really talk about this without tearing up. But uh, for the first time in my life, I felt that I found my people, that I was not alone, that there were other people who, who, who felt the same way I did. It was an incredible feeling. And I knew that this, this would be it for the rest of my life. And uh, I immediately became active right there and then, uh, right at the Congress in 1975. And, uh, <clears throat> and the following year, I launched uh, vegetar uh, Vegetarian Information Service, which eventually became Farm and so forth. So that's, wow. that's, right. what, that's how right. it began. So, that, so, yeah, that's how it began. And, and what, so what kind of uh, activism 
did you start with then? I mean, in in the seventies, eighties, um, yeah. What did it look like so back then that, for you? At that point, it seemed to me that the most important thing I could do was to distribute information about the benefits of vegetarianism. And so uh, we uh, we distributed uh, leaflets, pamphlets, brochures. Uh, I also reached out to the uh, to to science organizations, the uh, conferences. I spoke at conferences. I testified before congressional committees because I was living in Washington then. Right. <clears throat> and uh, one of the places I testified at was uh, the Senate Select Committee on Nutrition and Human Needs. And a lot of people, including myself, mm. testified about the uh, harmful effects of uh, meat eating, or in my case, about the beneficial impacts of uh, eating plants instead of animal flesh. Dairy was not an issue back then. Uh, right. you know, nobody knew about veganism. The, the discussion was all about animal okay. flesh. And uh, in 1976, okay. the committee actually issued a report called Dietary Goals for the United States, which actually recommended reduced consumption of meat. <laughs> the, the meat industry right. was caught by surprise. They, they were not following. The executive director of the committee is a professor from, uh, from uh, Cambridge, from Harvard University, uh, uh, did not... Mm -hmm. Uh, did not, I mean, the, they were done with the hearings and it was time for him to write a report summarizing the hearings and drawing conclusions from the hearings. But, uh, mm. but he didn't announce a timeline and, and he produced that report very quickly. Right. <laughs> uh, so basically the meat industry was caught by surprise. They didn't know the report was coming. And they were they were absolutely livid. Right. They uh, they came to Washington and they threatened the committee with abolishing the committee. They threatened Senator McGovern with not getting reelected and so forth and so on. And they insisted that all copies of the report be destroyed, and uh, and the recommendation and reducing meat consumption be removed, which happened, uh, which was done. Mm. I actually have one of the <laughs> original copies that uh, before destroyed. Right. But anyway, that was the beginning of the dietary uh, goals for the, for the United States, which is now published every five years. Mm -hmm. And it's still the scene of, uh, mm -hmm. of battles between nutritionists and the meat and dairy industry. But anyway, that's what we yeah. did uh, as the Vegetarian Information Service. We also did the conferences. And at the conferences, mm -hmm. uh, we, uh, you know, the typical conferences, uh, 
they were called the Eating for Life conferences. But uh, one of the things that happened at, at these Eating for Life conferences, people started showing up talking about this strange new concept. They called it animal rights. And we didn't know what the hell they were talking about. It's like it's like somebody coming to you now and talking about the rights of trees or rights of rocks or something, right. you know. I mean, we, you know, we liked <laughs> animals as well as the next person and we didn't want to kill them, but rights, I mean, they were animals, you know. <laughs> what's, yeah. Yeah. what's the connection with animals having rights? But there were a couple things that we really liked about these strange people. One was they, they had a lot of enthusiasm. See, they, they read Peter Singer's book, 1975 book, Animal Liberation, and they were inspired by that book. Mm-hmm. Nobody else was. I mean, the book was basically an academic exercise. It was discussed in departments of philosophy, but nobody else knew about it. So, so I like, but they were very energetic. They, they were, they argued, they made a lot of sense in some ways. And, 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 and the other thing we liked about them is they ended up in the same place, which is not killing animals for food. And so I said, okay, if we're, if these people have all this enthusiasm and the vegetarians are just talking to each other, and we're ending up in the same place. What if we bring these groups together and see what happens? And so in, so in 1980, I decided to do that. And I said, the next conference, mm-hmm. instead of just inviting vegetarians, I will also invite the animal rights people. <clears throat> and that's what happened right. in 1981 in August in Allentown, Pennsylvania. Uh, and basically, that was the birth of the animal rights movement. The animal rights folks just took over. Because <laughs> uh, <laughs> they had more enthusiasm yeah. and, and more, I guess, more people yeah. Yeah. Enthous- into it. And, yeah. uh, okay. and they came out of the woodwork. You know, there were a lot of people that I didn't know about who heard about that there would be a conference yeah. dealing with animal rights and they just showed up. We had about 150 people. Mm-hmm. When I was basically planning this, it took about a year to plan it. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a young man who arrived in Washington. His name was Alex too. And mm-hmm. uh, he was a student at the uh, George Washington University, which is located here in in uh, Washington. He decided to form a little student group and he called it with this weird name, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals or PETA. Uh, Then, uh, but but because of his enthusiasm and his vigor, he attracted a lot of local uh, activists. So and, and then he also hooked up with the woman who was running the local shelter, the, the Washington Humane Society, 
by the name of Ingrid Newkirk. Mm. One time he, he came into my house and he said, he said that he's going to volunteer at the local vivisection group called the Society for Biomedical Research. And he did, and he started taking photographs of the experiments that were going on there. Anyway, to make a long story short, right. by, by, by the time I had my conference in August of 1981, he had a lot of photographs and videotape of these horrible experiments that were being conducted on macaque Mike, monkeys at this biomedical research institute. He brought all these tapes with him to the conference. And one of the people attending the conference was somebody I considered the father, the grandfather <laughs> of, the, uh, of the animal movement, uh, who nobody has heard of, uh, is a man named Cleveland Amory. Does the name mean anything to you? Okay. Um, no, to be honest. <laughs> well, Cleveland Amory. It does now, though. <laughs> Cleveland Amory was like the media god of the United States back in the uh, 1970s. So remember, television came to the United States what, around 1950, then color TV came about 19, mm. in the 70s. And if you had a TV set, you needed a publication that told you what was being shown on TV and, and those half a dozen channels at any time of the day. Mm. And the publication that gave you this information was called TV Guide. And every home mm. in America had TV Guide. And every issue of TV Guide had an essay by Cleveland Amory. So Cleveland Amory, there is no one as well known in the media world today as Cleveland Amory was back then. And, uh, and we, were, <laughs> we were really honored that he deigned to attend our conference. He saw the videotapes and photographs that Alex Pacheco brought. And he said, this is dynamite. And uh, he, 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 he basically called his media bodies and uh, he blew this thing wide open. And uh, we, uh, not, well, we, uh, Peter, <laughs> Alex and Peter, ended up on the front pages of America's newspapers and radio and TV broadcasts. And that basically is what launched wow. the animal rights movement. I um, didn't know any of that, to be honest with you. I think that's really, um, I think people watching this who are vegan and activists will find this to be, it's very interesting and it's good to know uh, where this began in the USA, you know, like how Peter began and, and, and the kind of, and how that worked. And so, so of course, you've got a long, long history of working with now you, you've seen like the beginnings of, of the animal rights movement 
and you've been involved all the way up until present day from from you know from the 70s 80s onwards so I'd like to talk to you about with your extensive history your extensive knowledge and experience of of animal rights and, and animal rights work vegan work if it, let, let's start with what do you what do you if there's let's what one of each if there were if there was one thing that you would you'd say you like about the present day animal rights movement one thing that you that you say you like or that you like the most what would it be and if there's one thing that you think the most important thing that needs to change or be improved also what is that so one thing you like and one thing you dislike about the modern day animal rights movement or the vegan world or you know however you want to define sure. that yeah so uh, the animal rights movement has undergone uh, major changes since since those days in the early 80s Mm. For one thing, Definitely. for one thing, uh, so this episode I just described of how we became implanted in the nation's consciousness <clears throat> because of the experiments mm. on the macaque monkeys, which Peter disclosed. This resulted in the fact that the movement uh, became about vivisection. And uh, the first 20 years right. pretty, were pretty much about vivisection. Uh, we were the only organization addressing farm animals. And of course, now the movement is primarily about farm animals. And uh, the way that happened mm -hmm. was in uh, to, around 2012, when uh, a lot of money came into the movement and uh, that money came primarily from an organization called Open Philanthropy, which uh, is based on uh, uh, Jeremy Bentham's original concept of reducing suffering. And so mm -hmm. their money is going into efforts which we generally refer to as welfareism, uh, which means trying to improve the conditions of animals in factory farms rather than ending their exploitation altogether. And so we have, we've, we've always had this distinction in a movement between the welfareists and the liberationists, mm -hmm. but uh, it became much more pronounced once the money started flowing towards the welfare organizations. And today, uh, right. farm, uh, farm animal rights movement is, as the name implies, is the only organization that is working on ending the use of animals for food. The other organizations are working mm -hmm. on improving their conditions pretty much. The other thing right. that happened when the money started coming in is that a lot of the animal activists who were volunteering their services and were very idealistic became employees of these mm. large organizations. These organizations went from maybe a dozen people to hundreds of people. 
they're huge <laughs> and uh, and uh, it it kind of became more of a business than than an ideology and uh, the the concerns right. changed uh, the focus were, became less on animals and more on uh, relationships human relationships uh, then of course this became uh, accentuated in 2017 with the me too movement and uh, which pervaded the animal rights movement as well and uh, people started mm. complaining about the fact that a lot of men were in charge of organizations that they had founded and it became it became right. i guess it's one of the pains of growth is that you kind of lose focus of of what you are about and become more concerned with uh, with everyday mm. uh, working conditions so to, so so that's so that's what that's what i don't like about the movement is the fact that yeah is what needs to improve that we yeah. have lost our focus you know in in 1992 right. there was a, a a famous slogan and that's bill clinton was running for president of the united states and they were trying to decide what issues they should focus on and one of his advisors hung a sign in the headquarters of the Democratic uh, National Committee that said, it's the economy, stupid. <laughs> and I would, li I would right. like to hang such a sign <laughs> in every uh, animal office today. It's about the animals, stupid, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, I totally. You're about you know you're you're not about your petty peeves and you're not about uh, launching the the next campaign about the person you don't like on social media. It's about the animals. It's about <laughs> what what you can do to save animal lives. So that's what I don't like. Yeah. What I no, what yeah. I do like is the fact that we still exist. I mean, we may be we may be the cutters, <laughs> the remainders, the leftovers of the original animal rights movement, but we still exist. But mm. the thing that's very hopeful that not, I not only like but find extremely hopeful is the development mm -hmm. of uh, animal-free uh, uh, products, food products. Uh, animal right. feed meats and yeah. uh, dairy products, which is what eventually is going to save more animal lives than any advocacy. Yeah, I would hope so, because people will just choose the, yeah, when they become even better and even cheaper, I mean, why would you not choose them? It's a no-brainer. And, uh, and, um, and, and so on and, that note, then, then, talking about... Once, yeah, go ahead. Once people basically eat plant-based diet then we can mm. talk to them about animal rights and veganism yeah it's a lot easier 
it's a lot easier. Um, so, so now we're on to like present day, and 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 it will actually be great to hear. Again, I think slimming this down to one point is a good idea because it makes you pick the, the the thing that you really think is that is the number one. Um, so, if you had to choose one way to change the world for animals, the so so this the, you could only choose one way. So if somebody's asking you, you know, they want to know what they should do, and they could only do one thing. What would you tell them is is the one thing they should do to change the world for animals? Is promote animal free foods. To try to change the world for animals. Promote animals. To go vegan. Well, I have a I have a problem with that. You want to get into that? Uh, with 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 the um with the word or uh, the concept and the word. Yeah, <clears throat> I have a particular. I have a particular. Oh, okay. <laughs> you may want to cut this out later, but. I have a particular problem with the term vegan diet. Yeah. So first of all, the term diet is not a friendly term. It's a, it's a term that denotes sickness uh, temp, temporarily, mm. to, to, you know, uh, not long-lasting, mm -hmm. something you do briefly. It uh, denotes restrictions. Yep deprivation okay it's not it's not something you willingly embrace the term vegan has mm -hmm. become less foreign through the years but it's still somebody that your prospect is not and so you're asking your prospect mm -hmm. to become somebody he's not for mm -hmm a brief time with rest, with food restrictions <laughs> it's not it's not very hmm. inviting it's much more inviting to tell right. your friend hey have you tried this uh, latest uh, burger that uh, i have here for you so anyway yeah okay. so i'm in favor of promoting plant-based animal free foods and then and then okay then okay. talking so, to yeah. people about veganism and uh, and the animal rights the other problem uh, okay. i have with vegan is that vegan is not really about food vegan is a lifestyle it's an attitude no. towards other sentient beings food is incidental yeah. to it obviously if you have a sense of kinship and uh, respect towards other sentient beings. Uh, you don't need them, but but that's not mm -hmm. enough. Let me understand. Let's see if I've got it correctly. So your 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 best way is first of all promote plant based diet. Try and get people to show show it's healthy. Eat the plant based well, diet, and then once they've eat they eat the plant based diet. You could talk about the ethics and actually that you know the worldview, a vegan worldview, and hopefully that to convince them to take well, not to take up that worldview. They already take up that worldview, but hopefully to them to realize they they agree with you, and then actually you know they don't they would be a vegan from then on. That that that's what you think yes. is the best way. Yes, definitely. I think most people when they when they go go vegan, they do they they become a plant based dieter. In, in initially, um, yeah. and then you, you are what you're saying is is definitely right. I think that is that is how most people, ev you know, do it. So it makes sense. And um, 
Well, I guess one, now uh, you mentioned earlier on you. Yeah, one Go of ahead, the sorry. questions you had asked earlier that I did not get a chance to get into sure. is uh, what what are my recommendations yep. for the future? <clears throat> what 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 I wish we would be doing? So yeah, uh, so obviously sure. yeah, so obviously you know if you're in a position to either start a company with of plant-based foods or or support or financially support such a company or promote the consumption of these foods anything you can do to increase the consumption of plant-based foods is is good but if you do not and and, and we we really have these options even though we don't realize so for example if we're members of a club we can ask for plant-based options at our functions if we're members of a school we can ask for again plant-based foods be served Uh, if we're working for a hospital you know again yeah so we do we do have options even as individuals to to promote the consumption of plant-based foods, uh, but uh, if but beyond that, I mean, as as an organization, what can we do? I think that I think that the most promising option, and this is where I think farm will be getting into next, is mm-hmm. uh, you know I'm looking at children and. Uh, children have a natural affinity towards animals. If you think about it, the very first objects we handled in our cribs were animal toys. The very first stories that Mm. we listened to were stories about animals. The very first movies that we watched on TV or in a theater were stories about animals. Our family dog gave us unconditional love even when our classmates and our siblings would not. So we have this original affinity for animals. And then around the age of four, our parents tell us that yes, the dog on your sofa is to be loved and cared for, but the pig on your plate is to be abused and killed, cut into little pieces, and then consumed as food. That's the first time that that child is confronted not only with the notion that animals are food, but also with the notion that one sentient being in our society can be cherished and another very similar sentient being can be abused and killed. And that's the very basis of what we call discrimination and racism. And this is what made the Holocaust possible was the fact that some people were reduced into the notion of being subhumans, of not being 
quite human. So if 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 we find if we can find a way to preserve this uh, affinity in children, and I was thinking, mm. you know, children watch uh, a lot of YouTube shows. If we can show them scenes of farm animals interacting with people in a friendly sympathetic way mm. maybe we can preserve some of that affinity so we don't have to come to them when they are uh, teenagers and able to make their own food decisions and say okay now eat these animal free plant-based foods and then their logical question is mm. where were you 10 years ago when i was when when I would have accepted your message. I really hope that you and, and Farm put some time and research into that as, as you know, you have a very resourceful organization and I, and I hope you can figure this out and teach us all, you know, how we can help with that as well. Uh, I know there are some activists that are trying to do the same thing, uh, trying to get in, into schools. But it's difficult because, you know, uh, parents don't like it. They don't like that you know, someone's going into a school and trying to indoctrinate their kids to be kind to animals, you know how it is. So if you, you know, if you can figure out a way to, yeah, find out what, you know, where their eyes are going, what are they watching on YouTube? Is there a way we can get content to them that, that makes them stay connected? Then that would be amazing to, to figure that out. I think that's a really interesting tactic moving forward into the future. And, the and, other, um, and yeah, about the, the future. For, yeah, go on. Sorry. Is, to be more supportive of one another. Yeah. So, you know, uh, it, yeah. a lot of, uh, the, there was a study published about five years ago that indicated that five out of six <clears throat> vegans and vegetarians regress. And they give different reasons. Uh, a lot of them say, oh, I didn't feel well. I think those are excuses. I think there may be some people who do not do well on a plant-based diet, but I think they're a tiny minority. I think most people do mm. fine. I have done fine. I've been, been a vegetarian now since 61 and vegan since 81. So I, I never get sick. I, you know, I'm, I'm 88. I look in my 60s as people tell me so so i think that the main reason that people regress is social pressure and uh, and this uh, expresses itself in two ways one is that they feel isolated they they feel they're always in a minority in the office setting or any other work setting and the other is that there is a lot of sniping and antagonism, especially in social media mm. uh, it, against one another for various reasons, including yeah. not being perfect vegan, whatever that means. So I hmm. think we need to be a little yeah. more supportive of one another. I totally agree. It's it's uh, I've I speak about this quite a lot on this podcast as well when I have other you know vegan pals on and and it's a topic that's come up multiple times and 
um, trying to, yeah, it's a, it's a great point. I'm glad you mentioned it. I'm glad you brought it up. And it's it's very important for any vegan watching. Please uh, listen carefully to that. And don't try it. I mean, not nobody who watches the my videos tries to cancel out other vegans. I don't think because they know that this is not what I'm about. But for for sure, there are lots of vegans out there who. Um, for some reason, yeah, they, they, they do that. And um, we're trying to fight against it. What I wanted to ask you next, actually, is about the future for you. So you mentioned that you're writing these books. Uh, when when can we expect them to be to be available, to be out there? Right. So a lot of uh, what I've been talking about on this podcast and a lot more is uh, publicly available uh, on the internet on theveganblog.org. I published 60 60 essays in the past two years that reflect most of my thinking. Uh, The the Holocaust book will... uh, My my thinking about the Holocaust is mostly available on a special website called Never again.org with a hyphen but we never again mm-hmm. never hyphen again.org okay uh, the actual book is almost written but the the publishing process takes a long time i'm in the process now of looking for okay. a publisher uh, the animal book the, the the animal rights movement book that's really pretty much contained in the essays on my blog it just needs to be put together okay. i've read a few of your blogs and i can i can attest that they're really good so definitely those websites will be linked in the pinned comments of this video so you can go check out both of them and see alex's work and of course um, uh, and uh, no alex of is, course our yeah. our organization's website is farmusa.org yeah, perfect, perfect. That'll, we can also pop that there in the in the pinned comment. So, Alex, it's been amazing to have you here. Very informative. Um, you know, lots of information I never knew before, and and uh, you know, a really, you've got a really inspirational story, and uh, I'm sure a lot of people are going to feel, uh, you know, vegans watching this should feel inspired to, to get out there and you know keep fighting the fight. And anyone who's not vegan watching this, as I said earlier. I mean, I don't know how you could possibly look at yourself in the mirror right now, look yourself in the eye and, and keep doing what you're doing to these animals after, you know, hearing someone like Alex and, and what he has to say. So I, I you know, you, you, all the help you need is out there. So you, you can get in the comment section. We can talk there and get on to a website like challenge22.com. Um, all the resources are out there for you to go vegan. And it's, it's you know, it's 2022. Right, Alex. I mean, you, you, it's not, we're not in 1970 anymore. I mean, it's pretty easy to go vegan now, isn't it? Very easy. Uh, thank you so much again. Uh, keep keep up the amazing work, and uh, you know, I look forward to keeping in touch with you, and uh, look forward to seeing seeing these books released as well. Thank you. It's a pleasure.